0: Ancestor by number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Travelcast, episode 396. The Treblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on The Treblecast, a trifecta special. Trifecta specials feature three different authors read by three different narrators all around one subject. This week on the DCAST, we talk about loss, specifically the five stages of grief. And don't worry, it won't get super depressing. We're more focused on the stages of loss here, really, than the nitty gritty tragedy. The Five Stages of Grief model was first introduced by Swiss-American psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her 1969 book On Death and Dying, and was inspired by her work with terminally ill patients. Motivated by the lack of instruction in medical schools on the subject of death and dying, Kubler-Ross examined death and those facing it at the University of Chicago Medical School. The model postulates a progression of emotional states experienced by terminally ill patients after diagnosis. The five stages are chronologically denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. DABDA, if you remember things through nonsensical acronym... Now, big thing that Kuba Ross would definitely have me note, these were never meant to help tuck people away or their messy and complex emotions into tiny, neat, five-step packages. There is no typical loss, and so there is no typical response to loss. These are simply part of the framework that make up the basic nature in our learning to live without, not a series of stops in some linear timeline. Your grief is your own timeline. And here's Norm's own caveat. I'm taking this outside of death and dying a bit here, folks. At least for me, I've found this progression pretty natural and apparent both in myself and in others in a number of non-death experiences, too. I find it plays out in a lot of different timelines at once, though, over years and daily sometimes, sometimes even minute by minute— Ever had to fire someone, or been fired yourself? Ever lost a good friend, broken up with someone, or been broken up with by someone else? That moment where suddenly there's an OMG vacuum, and you just can't wrap your head around how you got here, or what comes next. But the big ball of planet underneath you keeps spinning, second by second, and you have to react somehow. This is how we usually do it, at least according to Kubla-Ross, and yeah, I'll throw in my hat in there too, old Uncle Norm. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Dabda. So this week we progress through those five stages and what better way, more or less, through ghost stories. I mean, who could understand loss better than those who have lost, am I right? And ghosts, I'm looking at you here, folks. We're going to start things off with The Sepulchre Out of Sea by Eric Shattuck, a fine ghost and sailor tale dealing largely with denial and anger. Eric Shattuck is a freelance writer living in Charleston, South Carolina. He studied at South Carolina State University, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in English and served as an editor for the Inkwell Student Literary Journal. His work's been published in Freeze Frame Fiction. This story is a travelcast original, read by the fantastic Nick Cam, produced, as are all the stories in this week's trifecta, by Adam Pratt. So without further ado, we bring you The Sepulchre Out of Sea, by Eric Shattuck.
0: The Sepulchre Out of Sea, by Eric Shattuck. When the gale has finished tearing at us and the hull has ceased its moaning... ...we head above deck to find our warship cradled in the boughs of an enormous tree. There is no sign of the fleet, no hint of sea. There is scarcely anything to be seen through the steaming fog which surrounds us. The captain is lost, swept overboard without a sound and with him the bosun and two of the gunnery crew. As quartermaster, command of the Franco falls to me. The next morning, I resolve to throw down the rope ladders and scout our surroundings in pairs. Yet no sooner do we set out than the cry goes up. The bosun's body is found. Our carpenter devises a harness of ropes and drags him onto the deck. We gather around him. The evening sun filters through the canopy and drenches the body in golden light. One of the men kneels, brushes wet leaves from his face. The bosun's cheeks are flushed, his lips dark, as if untouched by death. Looking at him, I feel a kind of magnetism, an undertow beneath the surface of my thoughts which draws me closer. I shake my head, and the spell is broken. The men regard me with strange expressions. The crew installs the dead man as captain. I protest. I make the sign of the cross and invoke the name of our last captain. Was it not I, after all, that he placed his faith in? But there is no reasoning with them. Their eyes hold no respect for my rank. They strip me of my saber and cartridge belt, every ornament of my authority... My wrists and ankles abound. They take me by the head and feet and lay me in the berthing next to his. The dead captain of a dead fleet. Propped upright in his cot, wrapped in chinchilla furs. His fingernails grow longer and his grey beard has gone black with mould. But still the taint of death eludes him. It is a simple thing, ...to look at him and imagine that he is only sleeping. The men buzz around him at all hours as if bewitched... ...moving below decks without paying attention to one another... ...whispering softly to themselves. The captain speaks to them, they say. He tells them where to find fresh water... ...where to lay their snares... Which hollow trunks will bear the nests of nightjars and frog mouths and poor me ones? They scratch a crude map into the ship's hull with their daggers. I lie in my berth and watch branches sway through the porthole. One year and eleven months at sea to end up here. When I look at him, I feel that familiar pull. A faint sound scratches at the back of my skull unfamiliar words echoing from an immense distance and beneath it a gurgling laughter I am gripped by a sudden bilious anger a jealous pain to see this wretched thing in possession of what is mine to wake each morning and see that sunken smirk I would like more than anything to claw his eyes out out the dull gleam in them. A week passes. The captain no longer fits in his berth. Though he takes no meals, he has grown fat as a tick. The crew lays him out on the mess table... ...and even then his boots dangle over the edge. The corpse is almost twelve feet long. At night, free of his watchful gaze... I chew my ropes. I work at them for hours until fraying slivers of hemp stab at my lips. I taste blood and then I feel the knot slip free. I suck the backs of my hands where the ropes have left my flesh raw and shining. They did not think to take the spare storeroom key. I find it in the dark, slip it under my pillow. In the morning, when the crew was out foraging... I creep from my cot and make my way to the storeroom. A dry click as the tumbler falls into place. Barrels of turpentine and pine tar. I pry them open, upend them. The heady vapors burn in my nose. I imagine his frozen smile, and the ugly nakedness of it. He will not have the Lanfranco. This usurper—he will not. I huddle in the corner like a match cord. Watch the end of it smoulder. The flames spread like water across the tarred floorboards. There is enough time as I run to look behind me to see him seated there, still smiling. I throw down a ladder and let myself drop the last few feet onto the spongy earth. Black smoke roils above me, hanging like a pall above the trees. The men will be returning soon. I can hear the captain laughing. The sound of it ebbs and flows Until it last melts into the jungle. Into the thrum of locusts. And the long, plaintive cry of the Kitzal.
1: Next, we bring you a ghost story about finding your way and bargaining and the reality of what's in front of you. We bring you When I Had Eyes I Didn't See by Anna Yates and as a horror and dark fantasy author from North Carolina. Her short fictions appeared in Daily Science Fiction, Penumbra, Stupefying Stories, Stray On, and Fantasy Scroll Magazine, among other venues. This story was originally published as the feature story in Penumbra EMAG, Paranormal Adventures, issue October 2014. It's read to you by Stephanie Malia Morris. So without further ado, we bring you When I Had Eyes I Didn't See by Anna Yates.
2: When I Had Eyes, I Didn't See by Anna Yates I had eyes once, before the lift man came. Now I have knobs, smooth and black and round as pegs. I touch them with my fingertips and try to remember what it felt like having eyes. If I push one knob in, the other one pops out like the elevator buttons used to. There used to be a brass plate mounted on the wall next to the elevator's cage with two smooth black pegs. I pushed in the top peg to go up. The bottom peg popped out. Gears ground, cables groaned, and the elevator clinked down to the lobby. The lift man opened the elevator cage and smiled. He'd never been handsome, but he always had a way about him. Good day, Miss Albright, he said, with his too polite voice, top floor. He winked. His eyes were like two shiny copper pennies, same color as his curly hair. I smiled. I liked his eyes. I wasn't trying to lead him on. He'd caught me off guard, that was all. After he let me off on my floor, his whistled melodies trailed up the elevator shaft. The notes twisted in the cables and stuck so they sounded wrong, crooked-like. The man in the next apartment, Mr. Harris, heard the crooked whistling, too. His door was always cracked when I got home from my courses at the ladies' college. He gave me a sharp look, snapped the pages of his newspaper, and stared until I closed my door. My body was found at the bottom of the elevator shaft. I had on the Navy seersucker dress I had worn to class that afternoon. Two rails of the elevator cage, flattened brass long as my forearm, had been prized loose and driven through my eye sockets. Mr. Harris told the police about the liftman's lewd whistling, how I invited men's stairs with my silk stockings in inappropriate ways, a young woman living alone, going to school. He'd tried to keep an eye on me, but he always expected something like this. The police took the lift man away. Tenants whispered how he was shady all along, a mulatto like that. The cable rails were wedged too deep for me to see more than the pop of flashbulbs in the street. But I heard it all. I rode the elevator alone at night. The cable's groaning covered the sound of my cries as I fell over and over down the elevator shaft. The rattling of the cage muffled the sound of my arms and legs as they smacked against the sides, the boneless thud as my body collided with the stone slab below. But the sickening crack as the rails went through my eyes? Nothing could mask that. Even I screamed when we got to that part. Night after night, I screamed. Mr. Harris locked his door, and still no word of the lift man. I waited for Mr. Harris in his apartment. I sat in his leather armchair by his newspaper, wondering if he still wanted to keep an eye on me. I'd like an eye if he had one to spare. I laughed until the rails shook and I had to hold them with my fist to keep them from tearing me apart. Maybe it was my wild laughter, or maybe it was his own sense of self-preservation, but Mr. Harris didn't come home that night, or the next, but the lift man did. The lift man's whistling rose up through the elevator shaft, calling for me, only this time the cables twisted it the right way around. I stood outside the elevator gate. Gear shuddered to a halt. Miss Albright, the lift man said, but he didn't sound polite anymore. His voice was ragged around the edges. Aren't you a sight for sore eyes? I smiled for him. My sore eyes would like a sight. He whistled under his breath. The cage clanked open. I held out my hand. His fingers were calloused and warm. I clung tight and let him guide me inside. Going down? Usually am, I said. What's one more trip? The elevator dropped, leaving my stomach behind. I swayed, but his hand stayed steady on my elbow. Hands grabbed the rails in my eyes, the forest made my head shudder as if my entire skull would be turned inside out. This is going to hurt, he said, but not as much as dying. My nails dug into my palms. I screamed the same way I did when the rails went in, tasting blood and pain and madness in my mouth. Is it done? My knees were weak. The rails clattered to the floor. The lift man held me up, almost almost. When he shoved the pegs into my skull, the initial wash of light was more than I could bear. I tried to blink, but my eyelids were crusted open with matted blood and eye fluids. I clawed at the pegs. He held my wrists until I calmed. I touched the smooth, round surface of each peg. Thank you. I looked up at the liftman. His neck was broken, snapped near clean off. His head rested against his right shoulder. Copper penny eyes watched me crookedly, jerking to focus. They lynched him. But you didn't kill anyone, I said. That's where you're wrong. Mr. Harris's body was found at the bottom of the elevator shaft. He had been dead for 2 days. My obituary and a pair of silk stockings were found wadded in his throat. He choked to death. I had eyes once, before the lift man came, but I didn't see. Now I have round pegs, smooth and black. I have the lift man. He has a broken neck and eyes that watch me from his shoulder. We ride the elevator at night, and together... We see.
1: Ah, the lift man, always there to keep us grounded. And finally, we close with depression and acceptance, with a magical realist story that first appeared in Daily Science Fiction magazine May 2012, called The Seven Losses of Na by Rose Lemberg. Rose's fictions appeared in Strange Horizons, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Fantasy Magazine, Daily Science Fiction, and other venues. She edits the online magazine Stone Telling with Shwita Narayan. The story is read to you by Nicola Seaton Clark. So without further ado, we bring you The Seven Losses of Na Ray by Rose Lemberg.
3: Seven Losses of Nare by Rose Lemberg One My life is described by the music of mute violins. When my parents married, my great-grandfather, may the earth be as a feather, ascended the special guest's podium, cradling the old fiddle to his chest. And now the zaida will play the wedding melody, they said. A special blessing, they said. A schooler. A royal blessing. But the bow fell from his fingers. 2. When I was born, my parents couldn't name me. They wanted a name Nare, which means beginning with the letter R, after my great-grandmother. She was born Ruckel, the brilliant daughter of a penniless Schlimazel cobbler. As the revolution fumbled all archetypes, they called her Rakilka, a kind of ironed, bronze-buttoned, bright Soviet future, Rukul. Later even, Rakil became too bourgeois, and my great-grandmother changed her name to Rosa. Rosa, like the beautiful Jewish communist in the propaganda film Seekers of Happiness. They banned that film long before I was born, and by the time I was born, Rakil, or worse yet, Rukul, was a name never to be uttered in polite company. Rosa was reserved for ageing fat Odessan fish peddlers with a mole on their upper lip. In addition to Rosa, my parents rejected Regina, pretentious, Renata, pretentious, Rima, lowbrow, Rita, uncultured, Raiza, worse than Rita, Rina, too Jewish, Roxana, too Ukrainian, Rotislava, too Russian, and Raya. I just don't like it. Nare bypasses names. Bypasses the rest of the sounds that would make me too pretentious, too lowbrow, too bourgeois, too communist, too Jewish, too goyish. The letter R doesn't have a history. The letter R does not remember Stalin. 3. All letters of the alphabet remember Stalin. The repression started before 1937 and lasted long after. They took my grandfather because he was an historian. History and memory are not the same. History must be written, made, organized. Memory is herded on Trans-Siberian trains. Memory disappears in labor camps. Memory pines and withers from hunger. Memory freezes under fallen lumber. Memory thaws and erases all traces. My grandfather remembers. He was composing a dictionary of Russian synonyms in his head, and this is what kept him alive. He couldn't compose history there, or since. Snow, blizzard, frost, permafrost, firm, cold shower, naked on the snow. See also under punishment. Snowstorm, graupel, rime, ice, neve, gale, absence. My little girl is safe elsewhere. Whiteout. Whiteout. Four They let my grandfather go in 1965. Stalin was dead, and so was Beria. My grandmother, Rose's daughter, had prostituted herself, so grandfather believed, because he no longer remembered their little girl. And after the shouting was done, my grandmother became opaque to him, thawing like absence over timber, buried under Siberia, gone. History is events and processes. History is rustling archives. It's oral interviews conducted inside the safety of the future, protected by course assignments and gleaming recording hardware. Memory compacts the permafrost under skin. And when skin thaws, we are left with nothing. My grandfather is leaving. Forever leaving, taken away by people who come at night. They say only four words, always the same roughly it means get your things and get out one small bag they always come for you at night in 1937 they came for me and missed by some 70 years i keep a small bag with basics under my bed at all times just in case cigarettes although i've never smoked the labor camp currency to trade for food or paper my grandfather is leaving forever leaving In 1965, he is taken away by people in ghost overcoats, so familiar they have become his family. He has no family. He is an orphan of snow in which to bury himself, to find a way back to the packed bag under the bed and the sleepless fear and my grandmother's breathing warmth by his side. History is not like this. Five. My mother left when I was five. She is an architect of permafrost. They dig deep. To bury the foundations, she says, so strong under the snow they will persist even when the earth sheds all water. That great thaw that will make past pain run in rivulets and be absorbed into the newly pliant earth. She is digging for her father. She doesn't want us to mention his name. I have a letter at least. He has nothing. Only the concrete foundations hammered into permafrost. The night people who forever come for you. 6. When the Germans came, my grandmother sewed all her jewellery into the underside of a white comforter cover. She had a dozen of those, embroidered white on white with snowflakes, flowers, and little stars. She packed her bag before the evacuation. She left with the bag, clutching her treasures, her mother's aunt's grandmother's baubles bought by sweethearts, husbands, mothers who starved to save for a sliver of a diamond a scrap of a gold watch. Back then, I love you, meant a little piece of herring to last all week. It meant enduring cold and staying up all night to sew an extra pair of pants for sale. My grandmother stitched the family I love yous into the comforter cover. She didn't want to talk about how it got lost. Sometimes I imagine her running after the ghost guards in her nightgown at night, crying, take it, take it! For that's how the story takes shape, that you must exchange your treasures for life. And if they bypass your treasures, they will take your life. "'perhaps to return it later, mangled and memoryless. "'And it will leave you again, then, leave for good, "'that life-shaped emptiness that gnaws and cusses at its tormentors. "'The wife, the child, the should-have-never-beens. "'Or perhaps my grandmother exchanged the comforter for bread "'on the long flight away from the war, from where the sirens wailed. "'Or perhaps she simply took the wrong comforter, "'her I-love-you's trampled into the earth under the growing heap of bodies. "'When my grandmother died,' She left me her wedding ring, the only thing that didn't go into the comforter. She left a little paper scrap attached to it. For my nare, it said. I do not want to talk about it. Seven. My grandmother wanted to protect me. She spoke Russian to me, purer than permafrost, rigid like her husband's dictionary of salvation. But her father, the fiddler, taught Yiddish to me in secret. Gedenk, he would say remember. He had his heart packed in the violin case and ready to go, but they never did come for him. Grandmother found us one day, huddled in the corner of the sofa, whispering forbidden warmth, stitching each other to life with thin threads of memory. The next day, my grandmother took me to the speech pathologist, a woman named Rima, another Nevi Rukul like me. Open your mouth, she said kindly, With anonymous instruments gleaming silver and frost, she scraped my language out. After loss. Everything goes. Rings and languages. Grandparents and bedding. Parents and selves. Names. Even the memory of loss is lost at last. Even snow. Even skin. We are careless and fumbling. We slide through life, bypassing history, curling memory into smoke from the cigarettes packed for emergency visits from ghosts in the night. Svesha mina vichot. Get your things and get out. When the guards came, they could not find me on the list. Nare is not a name. So they took my little bag, carried my I love yous away to starve, to freeze, to lose their minds, their speech, to work away the years. And only the ancient fiddler stays behind, a patriarch of loss, fingers numb and weeping in the cold. Everything thaws, even my mother's earth-deep construction. Only that which isn't remembered can never be lost.
1: And that was our trifecta special. Hope you enjoyed it. So, hey... Regardless of if you think DABDA is how you deal with change and loss, the big thing to remember, I think, is whether you're a victim on an elevator, a man whose ship has been overtaken by a bloated dead monstrosity, or someone coming to terms with atrocities in the past, it's what you're looking for, whether corporeal or otherwise. It's a roadmap forward. That's what it is, in any sense. Because maybe the real idea of being and feeling like a ghost is just being trapped somewhere, wanting to know what to do to get out. Let's close things out with this week's 100-character story winner by Great Northern Troll. Here it is. Dear Diary Keeper, I'm afraid I've misled you terribly. You've succumbed to a fatal misapprehension. I'm not a nice man. Oh man, who out there keeps a diary? I mean, who out there keeps a diary after you started doing some shitty things? Well, props to you. Because the rest of us like to write things down when we're doing interesting things, or doing good things. But the last thing we want is to write things down that are... Not the way we want to remember them, if you know what I mean. You, however, have a distinct opportunity to write something down in a hundred characters, no more, no less, and be picked as next week's Twitfic winner. We post in our discussion forums at forums.drapplecast.org. We post a winner each week and put it on our Twitter feed, at Drabblecast. Follow us there on social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, and have a good time. The Travelcast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license which means don't change it, don't sell it but feel free to share it all you like Seriously, with friends, blog about us write us a review on iTunes or wherever help us spread the weird and if you really enjoyed our podcast this week consider donating to us you can do so on our website at travelcast.org for any amount or you can subscribe for $10 a month and become a Travelcast B-Side subscriber which means you get bonus content each month It's good times You help support our podcast you get extra stuff, we appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Cesar Valtiera. Hope I pronounced that right. He's a graphic artist who enjoys creating all types of great art and working on his comic, Balazzo, which you'll find linked in our show notes. He's currently looking to flesh out his portfolio by doing illustrative work and welcomes anyone in need of that. He lives with his fiance Victoria, and their two cats, Chubbs and Pretty Boy. Check out more of his work at com. Our program this week is brought to you by Melissa Harvey, Jason Smith, Bo Kyer, Sandra O'Dell, Tom Baker, an old sock in the trunk of your car that you know isn't yours, Samantha Henderson, Jen Fisher, Zimmerman Bledsoe, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. Reminding you, I'm afraid I've misled you terribly.